0: Well, Beatrice, here we are in the Queen's Room in Middle Temple. Yes, it's rather lovely, isn't it? We've got a view over the Middle Temple Gardens, right down to the River Thames, where I can currently see a boat going past. Then on the walls, on the panelling, lots of gentlemen in full-bottomed wigs, probably from the 18th century or something. Uh, Yes, there's a guy with a very splendid ruff, and also I think that's the Queen Mother.
1: We must, of course, mention our microphones and recording equipment set up on the table, ready to record our very first episode of the Pupillage podcast. It's really exciting and very typical of Middle Temple, that when we said we wanted to do a podcast providing advice on how to get pupillage, the response was positive and supportive. So, from the heart of the Middle Temple, welcome to the Pupillage podcast. I'm Beatrice Collier. And I'm Georgina Wolfe. And this is the Pupillage podcast brought to you by Middle Temple and us, your hosts. It's a podcast for anyone considering a career as a barrister, from students at school, university, or on the law conversion course or bar course. It's for those contemplating a career change later in life and wondering what it might entail. And it's for the army of pupillage applicants out there, for those applying for pupillage for the first time, to the battle-weary, giving it just one last go. We know that
0: at times the search for pupillage can seem daunting. So in each episode, we talk to junior barristers, fresh from their own pupillages, members of pupillage committees, senior barristers, QCs, judges, masters of the bench, and lots of other guests, and ask them for their advice, what to do, what to avoid, and how to succeed.
1: During this first series of the Pupillage podcast, we are going to introduce you to the world of barristers. We hope to take
0: you on a journey from your first steps joining an inn, gaining advocacy experience and mini-pupillages, through to choosing your chambers and practice area and acing your applications and interviews. We will also explain what some of these possibly unfamiliar words mean. Today
1: we're talking to Ishan Kolhakkar about how to create your CV, but first we wanted to introduce you to one of our guests who gave us a whistle-stop tour through her career and path to pupilage to give you a flavour of what lies ahead. We heard from Uba about how the Inns can help you,
0: what you can learn from mini pupilages, scooping a scholarship and selling yourself an interview, and about how her life was changed when she received an access to the Bar Award. Uber, a very big welcome to the Pupilage podcast. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you.
0: I gather that you were a recipient of an um, Access to the Bar Award. Can you tell us how that came about and what you learned from it?
2: Uh, when I was in the final year of my law degree at Sussex University, I got an email, it was a round robin that had been sent, um, encouraging people to lie for this uh, experience. It was called the Access to the Bar Award. It was two weeks worth of work experience, so a mini pupillage and um, a week marshalling with a High Court judge. And I really didn't know what I wanted to do at that point, so I just tried my luck and I applied. Um, and then I was sent uh, an interview. And after that, uh, I undertook the work experience, and it, it's one of the reasons why I'm sitting here today as a barrister.
0: Amazing. So it actually changed your life.
2: It changed my life. I think is a fair way of putting it. Yeah.
0: Where, tell us about. Where where you did your um, where you did your mini pupilage for week one?
2: So for week one, I was at a commercial set called Essex Court. I think we know it. <laughs> um, it was a really interesting experience, and even though I met fantastic people, it was a great experience to show me that I didn't want to do commercial work, and that um, kind of encouraged me to pursue kind of doing uh, immigration and the publicly funded work that I do do now. And then uh, yeah, it was a really fantastic insight
0: so had you had you not thought about being a barrister at all before you went to Essex Court chambers? Uh,
2: I had thought of it insofar as as much as doing mooting so I did mooting uh, and that was really enjoyable and I had won a prize for mooting and so I knew I enjoyed advocacy but I didn't know any barristers and I didn't know any any lawyers in fact so I thought maybe I would enjoy it but I just didn't know so it was just a, the opportunity to see what it was like. What really
0: sold it to you when you were there then?
2: I can't it was a mixture of things uh, I really love the fact that um, even though you are self-employed it was such a collegiate environment to be in um, and Just watching people and seeing people who really loved the law was super interesting, even though I didn't love the practice areas they were doing. I found it fascinating. Um, And just speaking to them about their experiences of doing paperwork and being in court. And it was definitely solidified when I did my second week of experience as well.
0: Tell us about that.
2: <laughs> and so the second week was marshalling uh, with a High Court judge, uh, Master David Bean, um, who I think is now Lord Justice in the Court of Appeal. Um, and it was really a uh, fantastic insight, um, seeing it from, I suppose, a judge's point of view in the admin court. Um, and he gave me loads of great advice as well whilst I was there.
1: Do you remember any of it? <laughs> well,
2: <laughs> one of the best pieces of advice that he gave me was... Um, uh, he said this job, a lot of it is about being lucky, but it's about making your own luck. And you can make your own luck by um, experiencing as many different things and speaking to as many different people and being in the right place at the right time and seeing everything as an opportunity. And that really stuck with me because that's really encouraged me to then go on and do more volunteering and all the pro bono work that I did do after. I'm sure that a lot of
1: our listeners are anxious about not having contacts at the bar and mm. how, you know, we've we've talked a lot about how valuable it is to speak to barristers about chambers and about practice areas. But if you don't know anybody, how do you recommend speaking to and finding those barristers?
2: Well, I think that's really where the inn comes in. And the inn was my resource. It was my point of contact to really meet those people. i um, <laughs> When I say I didn't know, I did not know a single lawyer. I Really, I don't think I even really knew the distinction between a solicitor and a barrister until I started investigating. So the inn really was my first kind of source of information and a really um, important source of information that introduced me not only to barristers but to judges as well. Um, so. I would say if you really don't know where to start, I think the first step really is getting to, getting involved in your inn and seeing what uh, outreach programmes they have. And there's always barristers and judges that are at these networking events that, that will get you comfortable to speak to people.
0: Can you provide some reassurance then? Because it, it sounds to me like your experience of the inn has been positive.
2: Absolutely. I mean, my, and I, I should say, I, I wasn't, um, I am now maybe, but back then, about four or five years ago, I wasn't overly confident. I didn't feel confident walking up to barristers or judges in a room. And that's why it was so important to have um, a point of contact in the in. And for me, it was Crystal Richmond who introduced me to um, all of these fantastic people who I now call friends as well. And what was also really important is I made a, I had a friend who I met at bar school who was in a similar position uh, as I was, who really kind of didn't know anyone. And we used to go to these events together, and that made me feel a lot more confident, having someone that that I knew we were kind of in it together.
0: Yeah, no, that's a really good tip, because then, I mean, I I know sometimes that... um, I remember when I was just beginning, you sort of arrive in a really grand hall, and you're handed a drink, and then it's like, ooh, what then?
2: (laughs) I mean, it's super intimidating, um, but that really, and I can't emphasise enough, it's intimidating from the outside. Once you actually come in and you are and you are welcomed straight away um, your perception of the inn will totally change I mean I look back now and I find it really funny when I first came here for a scholarship interview I was so nervous and so intimidated I made my sister date take the day off work to come oh. into the in vicinity with me um, and it's totally different now
1: Well, I hope it doesn't embarrass you, but I know that you're quite successful not just in getting that access to the Bar Award, but in fact probably as a result of that scholarship interview. Um, Can you tell us a bit about the sort of scholarships that the Inns offer?
2: So there are a number of scholarships that the Inn offers, and I'm not just saying this because it's Middle Temple, but I genuinely thought one of the reasons why I joined Middle Temple was... uh, The scholarships are based not just on merit, but also on financial need as well, which I really appreciated. And I also appreciated that they gave everyone an interview. I knew that maybe... At that time, because I didn't have much experience, I might not look as fantastic on paper, but I knew that if I had at least one opportunity to speak to a panel of people, um, that that would make a big difference for me. And fortunately, it did. So um, I was very lucky to receive the Queen Mother Scholarship, which covered all of my bar school fees, which I was really appreciative of. Um, and the interview, until today, really, I would say, was one of the, the best interviews I've ever had. It was such a. Um, It was such a pleasant experience and I don't think I've ever been able to say that about an interview since. Take us on to your next step in your journey to the bar. So I did the access to the bar um, and I did a master's at the same time, so I had the work experience and I was doing my master's. It was in international law and I really enjoyed that. And then I started volunteering for a charity called Bail for Immigration Detainees, which really... I think that solidified even more. It was real casework, practical experience. And it was exactly, it's like one Seal, actually, maybe no. that's like... <laughs> no, go for it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to give kind of product placement, but Bail for Immigration Detainees uh, does what it says on the tin. Um, and we were helping people in immigration detention apply for bail as a caseworker. And I really, really enjoyed that. So I did that for the entire summer whilst I was working. And then I had the uh, scholarship interview after that. So I knew definitely at that point I wanted to be a barrister. But I needed to come up with the money to be able to pay for, for bar school. Um, and so... Uh, I was fortunate enough to get the scholarship, but I was adamant, and I think um, what's really important in having other friends who didn't get scholarships is there are other ways that you can fund your studies. And I was sure that if I didn't get the scholarship, I was going to take a year out and work as a paralegal for a bit. So, what? Uh, well, that's a
0: really important point that you've made because it, it's obviously very expensive to go to bar school. So, what advice can you give our listeners who are looking for ways to fund their bar school? You've, you've suggested um, obviously scholarship would be great. Mm. Um, and what, what what did your friends do?
2: So, I had friends. I had friends who worked in all sorts of jobs. I quite a few of them worked in, uh, as paralegals, which gave them a fantastic kind of insight into the areas of uh, that they wanted to go into I had a friend who worked for an insurance company I had a friend who was working as a receptionist in the evenings there were people who were doing it part-time as well along with their studies which actually I don't think is a bad thing so you're getting practical experience and spreading it spreading the cost over two years and I did have one friend who just took out a bank loan um, to do it so there are different ways I think you have to really be realistic when you are considering how much you want to do this um, and be pragmatic as well, um, but but also stay positive as well.
0: What, so what do you mean about when you said be realistic?
2: I mean, um, realistic in that, are you 100% certain that this is the profession for you or this is because this is I think it's a vocation Um, and it's a lot of money to be unsure and that's why I think it's important to do as much work experience and research as possible and I think it was having done all of the research having done the experience that I knew 100% that this was the career for me and that if I wasn't successful and I, I had that at the front of my mind actually that if I wasn't successful and I wasn't able to secure pupillage that at least I would have the skills to go on and do another job so I knew that at the end of the day it still wouldn't be a waste for me if that makes sense so absolutely I think that's what I mean about being realistic and kind of being pragmatic as well
1: you did some other pro bono work experience um, when you worked at the city law school's general legal advice clinic can you talk about what that entailed
2: so uh, that was really interesting. So every Tuesdays and Thursdays, uh, or every other Tuesdays and Thursdays, we would run a general law clinic, and uh, about eight other students and I would alternate from being student advisors as well as legal managers. So if you were the legal manager of the clinic, you would be doing all the admin, etc. So booking in the clients, etc., um, arranging appointment types, liaising with the solicitors from the city law firm uh, who were assisting us with the. Uh, with the clinic and as a student advisor you would essentially take down notes with the supervision of a city solicitor um, and uh, go through whatever the issue was with that person. You, it, you, We never gave advice there and then because obviously we didn't have the experience to give advice there and then but you would go away and you would research whatever their issue was and you would write them an advice or an opinion which was uh, overseen by the solicitor. Um, and that was really, really important. We helped loads loads of people with their different kind of landlord-tenant issues. Um, it was a great experience.
1: And, and not only that, for those students who might be a bit anxious about their own lack of ability and their own lack of experience it sounds like quite a safe space to t- first test giving legal advice
2: absolutely um having that supervision and there was quite a lot of supervision was uh, really important you know that it's not just i think the difference now in this profession is once you give advice that's it that's just you but it was a first environment to um uh, to have that extra safeguard there um, and make those mistakes and at least knowing that someone's going to correct it for you
1: Do you think that all of your pro bono experience helped you to get pupillage?
2: Absolutely, hands down. Um, And it gave me the confidence as well. I think there are loads of skills that are required to be a barrister. And I think more skills, certain skills are required in different practice areas. I knew from the beginning that I wanted to do, or at least I knew that I wanted to do immigration. And that is a healthy balance of the law as well as having real people skills. So, uh, just being an academic lawyer isn't, isn't, I think, enough to be an immigration practitioner. You need to be able to have emotional intelligence, you need to be able to be empathetic, and I think those experiences at the law clinic, you're helping people who are incredibly vulnerable, who are sometimes on the margins of society, and being able to develop those skills of how to communicate with a wide variety of people were really important. And I think the place that offered me pupillage appreciated those skills, and I really played them up as well.
0: It may be that there are some of our listeners who actually are not as certain as you were Mm. about where they want their practice to be, but it sounds to me from what you're saying that actually volunteering is also a really good opportunity for people to come to know a bit more about themselves and where their strengths are and, and so on. Absolutely.
2: What do you think? I think that's really, really important. You have nothing to lose by uh, experiencing or volunteering anything. You've you've got everything to gain, essentially. So um, there is no harm in different, trying different practice areas. I have friends who thought that they would be suited to immigration law, which is very stressful. Again, you're working with very vulnerable people. But at the end of the day, simply, even though they were excellent lawyers, didn't have the emotional resilience to continue with it. It's so disappointing when you don't get the right result for someone. And if that's something that's going to hold you back, then again, it's about being realistic and really taking the time to understand kind of what kind of a person you are, the skills that you have, uh, and whether that would be suited to the practice area. I think what is very difficult now, at least, and I didn't feel this pressure, but I think, Uh, people coming now to the profession feel this is that you have to pick your practice area so early on Mm. and because you pick so early on it doesn't mean you're stuck there forever you are not stuck so I think that is the key message that I would like people to kind of receive Uber,
0: one of the things that you said that really interested me was that the volunteering that you did helped you acquire confidence that really stood you in good stead when it came to applying for pupillage. I wondered if you could speak a little bit to our listeners about uh, about that process, so where you were when you started and how your volunteering helped you gain in self-confidence and self-belief.
2: I wasn't confident to start off with. Um, But I increased in confidence. There wasn't any time for me not to be confident, really. When you are dealing with people who've been made homeless, it's not about you at that point.
1: So, Uber. before you started Pupillage, you worked at the Refugee Council. What is the Refugee Council?
2: The Refugee Council is an organisation that helps people who are asylum seekers or refugees going through the process, kind of navigate life through living or making a new start in this country. I started volunteering at the Refugee Council soon after I started volunteering at Belfort Immigration Detainees. So there was a summer in between my master's Um, and when I wanted to start the bar course where I would become essentially just do full-time volunteering and then in the evenings I had a I had a receptionist job I was working at as a at a hotel so during the day I was doing uh, working at the Refugee Council and then alternate days working at Belfort Immigration Detainees and then in the evenings working at a hotel.
1: What did your work at the Refugee Council entail?
2: So I was a client advisor at the Refugee Council and we were based in uh, an office in North Finchley, I think it was and essentially it was a drop-in for, for anyone so you did not know who would be dropping in on that day um, and could be people who had newly arrived to the country people who uh, had uh, had been evicted from where they were staying we it could have been anyone uh, at through any stage of the asylum process maybe had come to the end of the line with any sorts of issues they had and um, People who were really scared, for example, um, about going to see their local GP or going to the hospital to receive healthcare treatment because they were worried about uh, being found by the Home Office and being deported. So they would come in as a kind of a last resort um, and just ask for any kind of help.
1: One thing I've found in my own experience is that the more competent I, be, I get in an area, the mm. more confident I feel. Is that something that you found doing this sort of work?
2: Absolutely. I think when you are, when you start out right at the beginning, um, you are plagued by self-doubt. I definitely had imposter syndrome for a very, very long time. But the more you do something, you have to put those thoughts to the back of your mind. And I think actually the confidence came from other people around me, as well as my family and friends telling me that I was good and I was doing well. And then and I started believing it, and you also see that when you start to get results as well. Um, there is nothing like feeling that you have uh, you've achieved the best outcome for a client, and that's really where your confidence comes from. And
1: I suspect, in the sort of work that you were doing and the kind of clients you were dealing with, you didn't have time. In the moment to feel nervous and to be nervous you needed to to help these people and to convey confidence
2: absolutely um i mean at the beginning i thought i did not know how i would react if so on one occasion we had a family who had just been made homeless turn up to the office and at that moment a part of you feels so desperate and so sad for them, but they're not coming to you for you to be sad and to kind of lament their terrible situation. You have to be confident and to really take action in order to assist them.
1: And the other the other thing we were interested in is if there's something that you now know that you wish that you had known at the beginning mm. that would have reassured you if you could talk to your younger self.
2: I don't know, I think I'd probably... T- that's a really good question. I think I would have told myself to kind of stop overanalyzing everything and just be confident. I think when you go to these in events, for example, whether it's dining or any kind of networking, um, you're so plagued by what this other person is going to think about you. And you, my biggest fear was coming across as stupid. I was so worried that I would say something so stupid and I would be uncovered. And looking back now I, I'd say to myself just calm down just relax it will be fine um, and just have confidence in your abilities fantastic thank you so much Uber, thank you very thank much thank you indeed. very much what would you have if you've told your younger selves so this is definitely
1: not for the final cut <laughs> of the podcast I, I feel like when I look
0: back we talked to Ishan who is an absolute mine of information
1: about how to build your CV Ishan was called to the bar in 2002 and remained in practice at Tuher Court until 2011. Following a stint at the Nursing and Midwifery Council, he is now the Deputy Dean of Education Services at the Law School, BPP. Ishan blogs and tweets great advice to his thousands of Twitter followers
0: from the handle at bptc underscore lecturer.
1: So, let's hear from Ishan.
0: and to the Pupillage podcast. It's lovely to have you with us.
3: Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: We would like to talk today to you about building your CV. Mm-hmm. Um, first things first, then, what's the point of a CV anyway? It may seem like an obvious question, but I think it's probably best to start at the beginning because I remember a time when I actually didn't know what a CV
3: was. Your CV is an opportunity for you to sell yourself to other people. People often see creating a CV as a chore. But it really is the document that the majority of people are going to see rather than actually ever meeting you. So unless you make it an effective way of saying, I want to meet this person in real life, I want to find out a little bit more about the things that they've said, you will never get your foot in the door and you won't get seen by a real person. It's quite often said that you don't get a
0: second chance to make a first impression, so would I be right in thinking that your CV is effectively your first impression?
3: Your CV may be your only impression that you ever make on someone. So, yeah, you really have to ensure that it's spelt correctly, that the grammar's right, that it looks appealing and you're not the best judge of that. It's really important to remember that you need a wide range of people to have a look at your CV and for them to tell you whether they think it's appealing. I've tried templates for my CV that come from Microsoft Word or any other programme, and although in theory they look nice, they don't match the content that I have. A CV in terms of a layout that would work for a CEO with 30 years' experience is unlikely to be right for a 22-year-old who's got far less experience but maybe a little bit more to write about each point.
0: I see. Uh, And um, well, you've, you've, you've helpfully covered what it looks like. Perhaps we should also dive into what should be actually on the CV. What sort of things are we supposed to be putting on our CVs?
3: CVs need to, as I say, sell you as a person. And the most effective way to do that is to show me how something is right, rather than just simply tell me that it's right. A really good example in this context is mini-pupillage. Many people say, well, I've done a mini-pupillage here, here, here and here. That's great. All that tells me is the name of a set of chambers. But if you can demonstrate very briefly something that you learnt on that mini-pupillage, I actually understand that you got something out of it. And I can see that you went to court and learnt something, or in chambers with somebody and learnt something, rather than just being in and around a barrister, which by itself really isn't very impressive.
1: Is there a standard format for CVs? You mentioned using templates. Is there a particular layout that law students and pupillage applicants should be thinking about using?
3: I think when I did pupillage, people would say it had to be two pages and you had to make sure there's plenty of white space. I don't think that's right anymore. I still think that two pages is a good guide in terms of length. And I would say for the average person you probably don't have more than two pages worth of content there. In terms of layout, I I think my tip would be make sure that it's easy to read. And I wouldn't want to be prescriptive in saying that you had to have margins of a certain size or a font of a certain size, but a conservative and sober font and something that doesn't have pictures or extraneous text is really what you're aiming for you want someone to be able to read this fairly quickly and then reread parts that they want to read again or perhaps look at a covering letter or ultimately invite you in for an interview so no comic sans then no comic sans and there's a, a, a diverging debate here that i have with a couple of people on twitter quite regularly about which font is best uh, for example fonts without serifs are a lot easier to read so consider your audience if you have somebody who has any sort of visual impairment using something like calibri that doesn't have serifs on it uh, is far easier for somebody to read than times new roman or garamond or many of the others that are commonly used
1: sorry can i just check serifs are the little uh,
3: yeah the little bits, bits on, the on, on the end of the
0: letters okay
1: yeah. thank you One thing I see a lot of in student CVs is a section called something like profile or introduction where students set out in a few sentences how they're dynamic, passionate and they're going to be brilliant barristers. I almost always put a line straight through that. Is that a view that you share?
3: I put a line through them as well. If you are dynamic and persuasive and passionate about being a barrister, your CV will say that. You don't need to tell me. I think there is a small, maybe 1% of people out there for whom a profile is a good idea. And in my experience, it's perhaps somebody who's come to the bar as a second or third career and might just briefly want to contextualise their previous experience. But that's a very small number of people. And even then, your CV should be good enough to convey the message that you want. I also sometimes, when I look at a profile, think what are you trying to hide? Or, alternatively, what have you failed to address that you think you can use this as a catch-all at the top to persuade me that you are all of these things that you've said? So,
0: no profiles. What should we advise our listeners to be putting on their CV then? They need to summarise their academic achievements, don't they? And presumably their work experience. What else would you expect to see on a a, a comprehensive CV?
3: Well, if we just take those two points just for a moment. With the academic achievements, I think it's really important for people to be honest and open about those academic achievements. If you try and squirm over what may have happened or not put a result in, the presumption from the reader is that you have something to hide. So just be honest and open about the academic experience that you've had. In terms of how far back you need to go, I think applying for pupillage, your degree is the last thing that you need to put on there. If there are sets of chambers out there who are asking for more, A-level results, for example, then put them on, but I don't think you need to put them on there. In terms of your previous work experience, think widely about the ones you want to include. I think it's right to say that People often exclude things like Saturday jobs or work they might have done, for example, in a call centre or in sales, thinking that that doesn't refer to or that doesn't relate to the bar. But it does. I mean, if we think about sales, that's all about persuading people. It's a great thing to show someone that you've got some experience of that. I also think there's plenty of chambers out there who really want a well-rounded person. And knowing that someone has had experience in the world outside of the law is really quite attractive. I think that, certainly for my experience, being in my early 20s and going down to the cells at Camberwell Green Magistrates Court and meeting a defendant for the first time, that was made easier through the experiences I'd had in my life, uh, through work and personally. So show that off. In terms of other areas you can put on your CV mini pupillages and work experience, here you're looking to have a well-rounded set of experience. So don't go for badge collecting, it's not about doing as many mini-pupilages as you can, My rule of thumb, really, is that you want to do three or four, and you want to do them in three or four different areas, perhaps with a second in the area that you're really interested in. I think it's important to show not only why you enjoy family law, for example, but why intellectual property is not for you, and why you might have fallen asleep in a conference during a mini-pupilage. Obviously, don't say that. That happened to me. I wouldn't put it on a CV, (laughs) but I, I just illustrate that as a reason why... Actually I was able to talk about not using the sleeping example that intellectual property wasn't for me it wasn't my kind of work
0: but in a way I would I mean I would certainly agree with you because that that sort of shows that you've given it genuine consideration and that in itself is far more persuasive to the people who are going to be reading your CV and, and they will feel that you genuinely want to work with them in, in their area of law rather than it just being something, something that you've alighted upon.
3: Very much so. I think the other thing to say is that as the line between what members of the bar and solicitors do gets blurred... I think it's quite important, if you can, to do some work experience with a solicitor in the area that you're keen on so that you really understand where that dividing line is and you could talk confidently in an interview about why yes. it's the bar you want to go to in this area rather than being a solicitor.
0: Yes, that's, that's a really that's a very smart piece of advice. Can I return to one thing that you said earlier, Shan? You, sure. you spoke about choosing carefully what work experience you want to include and 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 you were saying well don't don't just overlook things that you've done that you feel maybe aren't elevated enough or not barristerial enough so should we be advising our listeners to to think carefully about the sorts of skills that barristers use in their jobs so as you said persuasion advocacy customer service listening yeah and so on and um trying to find where in the work that they've done they can demonstrate they, they, they've exercised those skills.
3: Absolutely. You need to try and match up what you've done with the skills that members of the bar use on a daily basis. One of the ways to do that if you've done the BPTC is to think about the modules that you did and where you can find analogous experience in your working life. Also, it's important to do that because if you're going to write about, for example, working in sales as well as saying that that's where you worked and when, when describing it, this is your opportunity to say how that experience enhances you as a prospective applicant. Because simply telling me that you worked in sales in a shop is sort of interesting, but explaining that you had to deal with the pressure of lots of customers, a busy working life, having to listen to people and recommend things to them, Shows me how the, those skills that you've picked up would work in your career at the bar.
0: A question that I sometimes get when I'm being asked about CVs is what people should do if they got a 2 1 or a 2 2. Is the CV the place to explain why they didn't get a higher grade, or what do you think?
3: I don't think the CV is the place to explain. What I would say is that if you have a 2-1 or a 2-2 this is a good opportunity to put down results for modules that are better than that that might show off your skills so for example if you had a first or a really good 2-1 in a series of modules put those on there because that will help the reader understand the context of your grade in terms of explaining where you got to, there's a very fine line between the people who can tell you to two or perhaps even three decimal places how close they were to a first or a 2 1 from the grade they actually got, to the people who genuinely have a reason that will support poorer or poorer than expected academic results. I wouldn't put it in a CV. I'd probably put it in a covering letter or in some other aspect of your application. But I would also be realistic about the fact that many chambers will look at that application and say, that is not a mitigating circumstance in my view. You, you aren't able to show that your grade is better than it is. So really, those module grades are, are probably a much better way of showing off your skills than trying to say, there is some underlying reason here. What I would say in terms of underlying reasons, if you are able to find a sympathetic member of the bar who you can talk to about your application, they may give you a really useful steer as to whether this is something that chambers want to hear about and might be interested in, or whether it's something that's actually going to detract from your application.
0: I see, so it's definitely a possibility that it might detract from your application.
3: I think so. I think you might read this and think, well, Actually, I don't think there's anything mitigating here whatsoever. And now I'm focusing on this rather than many, many of the other good things in this CV.
1: Oh, I see. Yes. Would you put referees on your CV?
3: When you're creating your CV, you need to approach referees to ask them to be your referee. One of my big bugbears is receiving a reference request where somebody has not asked me to be their referee. So ask them in advance and make sure that it's someone who is comfortable writing a reference for you. Ideally, someone who'll write a great reference for you. And ask them to be honest. I've had students who've approached me for a reference and I've said, I don't think I can write you the reference you want. You really ought to try someone else. And, and hopefully you'll get that degree of honesty from your referee. But then, yes, put them on your CV. Uh, when I see references available on request, I think, well, well, why? I mean, it's very easy to tell me who these people are. If I want to contact them, I then can. And be mindful of the fact that some chambers, in, in, actually an increasing number, use referees to decide whether they should interview people. So don't add an extra step or an extra level of difficulty for them.
0: How many referees would you advise?
3: I think two is a, is a good number. Yeah, yeah, two is a standard number, and, and one academic, one professional, if you've got some professional experience, otherwise two academic. And I think beyond that, if somebody wants more referees or wants to contact a specific employer or institution, then they can contact you.
1: One thing I see quite a lot of when I'm looking at references is often the same BPTC tutor giving references to more than one student. And for me as the reader, that's extremely revealing because I can normally see whether the tutor prefers one, one student over the other. But for the student, I can see that that's a disadvantage. If a student came to you and said, I'd like you to be my referee, but are you giving other students references? How would you answer?
3: I would answer honestly and say how many others I'm giving references for and... I would, without breaching any of the students' confidentiality, probably explain the sorts of areas or parts of the bar in which I'm giving references this year. Not every teacher feels comfortable saying that. I-, I think that the easier conversation to have is do you think that you're the best person to write me a reference? And I think you've got to be comfortable enough to ask that question. And I don't think you should be shy from asking it. And I think in many cases, it lets the tutor say, no, actually, I'm not. The other thing that I suspect you see when you see the same, effectively the same reference several times, is someone who hasn't asked their tutor to be their referee or hasn't supplied them with a copy of their CV or any information with which they can tailor or personalise that application. I think that when you see your CV as an organic document, you will start to update it as things happen. I have a note on my iPhone that is things that I've done. I put them in there and they either end up in my CV or in an appraisal at work or in an application form later. If you sit down and think about your CV at punctuated points, for example, application season, you will undoubtedly forget about things that you've done that you could put on your CV. So if you see it as something that you constantly update and is constantly in a state of, well, here's a version I sent out, but here's the draft one that exists from the day afterwards, you will always have the best information on there. And would I be right in
0: thinking that treating it as a living document is an excellent way of identifying any gaps in your CV? Because presumably, if you sit down to type it, you get down to type it and there it is in black and white. And that way, if there's nothing to type, you know that you need to go ahead and acquire that experience
3: very much so and you should use it as a way of thinking right well that's what i need to do so for example if you're listening to this podcast and you think i would like to go and do some work experience with the solicitor in the area in which i am going to hopefully practice in if that's not on your cv now that should be the thing you think about well that's what i need to do next that's where i need to target my efforts
0: so perhaps a a sort of twinned with your cv a to-do list
3: very much so a to-do list of things that you want uh, or combine the two have the draft where it has a big red box that says missing and you can you know, note <laughs> very carefully what you need to, to put in there but don't email
0: that one out <laughs> don't email that one
3: out absolutely not the other thing to say about building your CV and thinking about what should go on there and perhaps what's missing is if you've got a, a friend or a work colleague or someone that you study with that you know well and knows you well, they can often help you with things that you've forgotten about. So when it comes to doing my CV, it's actually my wife, who's much better at remembering things than me, who says, what about that committee you served on? Or what about that thing that you did? Finding that person, if there is someone out there who can help you, is really useful. Um, It probably tells you that that's the person that you share far too much with, but they're a useful person to have when it comes to building a CV.
0: And that person might also perhaps be able to help you think about the things that you have got on your CV in a different light. Certainly I find when I'm looking at students' CVs, the, inf- the, the, the facts are down there or the raw material is down there. But it really needs, after conversation with, with me, it has been reformulated in, a, in perhaps a more effective way.
3: Absolutely. If you ask someone to look at your CV and look at the individual points and ask them to look at it through the lens of, do I understand what you got out of this rather than you simply telling me what happened? That's a good starting point for them because you can get them to say, well, okay, that mini-pupilage you did, this is what you did, this is what you got out of it. That's what I, as a reader, can see. And if it doesn't match what you want to convey, then you know there's some work that you need to do on it. If it does align perfectly, then great. You've got a great version of your CV. But remembering it's an organic document, it's great today, it's out of date tomorrow.
1: Ishan, you are a trailblazer when it comes to social media and very active, as we've mentioned, on Twitter. Do you think that students should put their Twitter handles, their Instagram accounts and these sorts of details on their CV?
3: Social media is a minefield for students... I think that if you have a professional account, which shows you off in a professional light, then by all means put it on your CV. Otherwise, hide it away from the world. Make sure that your feeds are all private, because there are chambers and employers out there who will go searching to see what they can find. If you use one of your social media accounts to talk to your friends and post pictures that only you want to see, make sure that you have them protected in that way. So yes, if it's a professional account that shows you off in a professional light, otherwise, absolutely not. Can we finally
0: ask you then, Nisham, what is your top tip for creating a successful CV?
3: My top tip for creating a successful CV is remembering that it is a living, breathing document and that you need to update it as often as you can And that you need to look at each aspect of it on a regular basis and say, is this showing off the experience that I want in a way that I want to convey it to the person reading it? Because if it doesn't, my CV will go no further than the recycling and I will never be met by the person reading it. My view when I was reading CVs or application forms was always this. Do I want to meet this person and find out more about the things that they've said And about them generally, and about whether they'd make a great barrister. If so, great. If not, off to the recycling goes your CV.
1: Ishan Kolatkar, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Pupilage podcast with us, Beatrice Collier and Georgina Wolfe. Brought to you by Middle Temple. Production support and music by Alex Dopirala. Huge
0: thanks to the wonderful team here at Middle Temple james Rogerson for helping us with the logistics darren latty for coffees and pastries and colin davidson for his enthusiasm encouragement and awe-inspiring little black book
1: we'd also like to thank all our clerks and our senior clerk mark waller in particular who have not disowned us for sneaking off down the road to middle temple for recording sessions please check out the show notes for more on our guests links to sources of information and a glossary of terms used in each episode If you have questions you would like answered in future episodes or want to give us some feedback, please email us at pupilagepodcast at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed the
0: episode, please rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast.